welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Park. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. And today we are talking with Dr. Nana Awuso from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Him and his wife, Dr. Phipps, are the founders of Prairie Eye Care, a really successful practice that grew into three locations. And Dr. Awuso goes above and beyond in providing optometric care for his patients and support for the optometry community. He graduated from ICO and remains deeply connected with the school. We're very excited to have Dr. Uso come onto Four Eyes to share his personal experience and expertise in opening and managing a private practice. So stay tuned and enjoy the episode. For our listeners who might not know you, can you please give us a little introduction about yourself? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Dr. Nana Owusu. Uh, I am a graduate of ICO class of 2008, which seems like eons ago at this point. I uh, practice with my wife in Winnipeg, Manitoba, who is also a graduate from the class of 2008. Uh, I didn't grow up in Winnipeg. I grew up in Edmonton and in Toronto. And I had no plans of moving back to Canada. Actually, I was set. I was moving to California and that was the end of it. But then I fell in love with a Winnipegger. And so here I am. And so um, at present, we have three offices in Winnipeg, all private settings. And uh, prior to opening those, we were living in Florida. After graduation, we moved to Florida. We practiced there for a few years and learned a lot, chased the sun a little bit. It was a fantastic experience. But eventually, Canada, home, brought us back. And so here we are. So just to get things started, so mm-hmm. for the first question here, we all know in optometry school, there's not a lot of courses dedicated to teaching about how to run a business or right. those courses in general. So how much business knowledge do you think is really needed for a new grad that wants to kind of open cold or start um, opening up their own private practice? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. It's challenging because every school will do this a little bit differently and the program is already quite rigorous. And so to add more and more things to it in terms of business management, et cetera, is, is difficult. There's hardly enough time for what you're already learning. So I, I think that taking a proactive approach is important. I think that whether or not it's something that they can give you in school, there are ways that you can figure it out to do it yourself. Personally, what I did uh, when I was at ICO, there was a course, it was an elective course that was called debt management, Um, but it wasn't so much debt management as it was more just everything about business that they couldn't really teach you in class. Um, And I hadn't even taken that elective course, but I I went to the guy who was teaching it and I said, look, I really want to learn everything that you have to say, so I will TA your course, I will do all your paperwork for you, I'm going to sit with you, and I'm going to write down everything you say. And, uh, and that's how I learned it. And so I think I guess the lesson there is whether it's resources in the building or outside of the building, there are lots of people out there who want to help. And so if you have other doctors who you know or who, who live in your communities, uh, if you're a student in your, and you know that there's somebody near where you live and you're back for Christmas, I think it's worth reaching out to them. Uh, at your college, whichever one you go to, <clears throat> those doctors are there as a resource. They're there to teach you the courses. They're there to teach you in clinic. But they're also a resource for different ideas. Many of them have had private practices, have worked in different settings. So I think it's worth reaching out to them and speaking to them as well. They're all there 
for you for, or for the students. And so, so I think that it's important that you use that resource and, and reach out to them. And they'll be more than happy to share business ideas and practices if you have questions. But, but realistically, there aren't a ton of resources out there that you can just get without some base of knowledge first. You know, it's sort of, it can sort of be like drinking from a fire hose. Like there's just so much to learn Right. very very quickly uh and so i think that the best thing you can do is use the people around you and ask a lot of questions good thanks another question is first of all i want to congratulate you on the thing um so on covalent careers uh prairie eye care was listed as top optometry design office oh, design wow. i didn't yes. even know that <laughs> <laughs> now you know well when you're a celebrity you don't keep up with the tabloids right so right. how would you know of course of course <laughs> So, yeah, again, a big congratulations uh, to you for that. Um, well, just kind of like for our listeners, what are some important things to consider when like designing the layout for your practice? Yeah, you know, that is a that's something that's very important to consider. And of course, like I was saying, like, that's not what we went to school for. We, we <laughs> were learning ocular disease and whatever else. Contact yeah. lenses, so you have to find a way to make it work, but that's not what you were taught. So I'm very fortunate that my wife, uh, she's a fantastic optometrist, but she's also uh, got a passion for design. Uh, and so we were, I was able to lean on her as a resource and we did this together. Now, there are a lot of things that you have to consider when you're looking to design your practice. Uh, first of all, just creating your own brand, making sure that you have something that is uniform to all of your clinics or specific to your clinic that can help be an identifier for you and maybe separate you from some of the others. So we have multiple locations and they all look very much the same. They're slightly different layouts, but they all have similar themes, similar color palettes throughout, um, similar areas for children to sit and play or do whatever they want to do. Uh, we try to establish a flow where it's really easy for patients to to walk around and to progress from one part of the building to the other. It's very easy to find yourself in the area where you might need to have your frames repaired or if you need to be pre-tested you know where you need to go or if you are going to be having a visual field test and somebody's leading you there you're going to know where you need to go we try to lay it out so it's just very simple we i think we kind of take for granted that it's just an eye exam but there are a lot of people who get really worked up about it and are really nervous about what we're going to tell them um, and so one of our most I guess pressing goals was to ensure that we found a way to make it as comfortable for people as possible. Uh, in each office, we have a couch. It's a it's a big couch, and it sort of faces outwards in each direction, so you can be back to back with somebody or side by side. Um, and it's just to create that level of comfort. But we've also sort of considered the fact that there are people who maybe won't be able to get in and out of a couch as easily as some others. They may not be as mobile. So we've got chairs of a variety of heights and sizes, so people can sit at a table or at a couch or at a desk if they prefer. Um, all of our front desks have an area that is significantly lower, uh, so it can be wheelchair accessible. You know, I think we always think about having a wheelchair accessible exam room, but I think sometimes forget people forget about having a wheelchair accessible front desk. If your front desk is four and a half or five feet high, somebody in a chair is not going to be able to see the person sitting on the other side of the of the of the desk looking to take their payment or 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 whatever they may need at the front so each of these are things that we really wanted to consider when we were putting out our layout and at the end of the day it was just making it comfortable for every and any patient who wants to come in the building yeah i think that's um that's hard for some people to remember sometimes because even when you mentioned wheelchair accessible desks i that wasn't the first thing that came to my mind and now that's something i'm probably never going to forget just because it was <laughs> brought up right um yeah and transitioning from the layout into um you know having an optical dispensary in your private practice 
Um, mm -hmm. What are the steps that you took into building that dispensary? Um, and not just the layout, but even, you know, what do you think is important when you're choosing the frame line for the types of frames that you're going to sell? Yeah, very good question. So I think that the first step is understanding your demographic, um, knowing who's going to be coming in and out of the doors. Um, <clears throat> each of our offices are in very different neighborhoods and we serve very different groups of people at each one. Of course, everybody's welcome to each office, but as much as we will have a fair amount of overlap in frames between some of the offices. We have our staples that we think are some of the nicest or best frames out there. We will have a variety of frames that will hopefully appeal to or maybe fit better for people who live at the different locations. And so I think ultimately, it's it's sort of like being a comedian and knowing your audience. You, you have to know who's across from you. And if you've got frames that aren't going to fit them or suit them, then it's just not going to work. Now you can't, you, you know, you never judge a book by its cover, of course. And so you can't necessarily prejudge and assume that everybody who comes into one location is going to want a specific type of frame. So you have to have a variety, of course. And that's why, like I said, we have overlap at each office. So anybody can be served every, anywhere. But there are certain demographics that we find will specifically come to certain locations. And so um, whether that's cultural backgrounds or socioeconomic status or what have you, there are different groups that come to each office. And I think that's just the reality of practicing in any neighborhood. That's probably part of what helped us all decide where we wanted to set up our offices to begin with, right? We, we had to know who was going to be there and who we were going to be serving. And so I think that that was a big part of figuring out how we were going to figure out what frames we wanted was understanding the clientele. Nice. Being a practice, private practice owner, yeah. um, what do you specifically look for in associate optometrists when you're hiring? Uh, so we see a lot of pathology at our offices, mm -hmm. which has just sort of happened, I guess I'll say organically, although I think that word is so overused, but it's, uh, it, it just sort of happened. I mean, we've, we've developed a good relationship with a lot of different types of doctors. So we get a lot of referrals from optometrists, ophthalmologists, neurologists, physiotherapists, um, but you name it, medical infectious disease clinics, people from all sorts of different clinics send us patients. And so because we see such a wide variety of cases, uh, what I tell our docs is, or anybody who's interviewing with us is I said, look, like intelligence is just kind of the minimum standard. And, and I think that for the most part, you're all intelligent. It's like being nice. Like when you when you're in kindergarten, being nice is the minimum standard. You 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 maybe don't deserve praise for smiling and being nice to people. I think that's just the way it should be. Yeah. I think that if you're going to be a doctor of any sort, being intelligent is the minimum standard. That's the expectation of the patient. That's the expectation of the people who are going to be working around you. So to be quite honest with you, when we've looked for different associates, I have never once asked for somebody's transcript. I have I, I do want to know where they've gone to school. Um, and the eye community is pretty small, or I want to know where they've worked, if they've worked elsewhere. And because the eye community is so small, I think that just by knowing where you've worked or who your attendings were at school or, or what have you, wherever you've been, externship rotations, et cetera, we'll get a pretty good idea of what you know. So beyond what you know, I mean, again, minimum standard. I think the most important thing after that is do you fit? You know, I, I worked with somebody in Florida who used to say, could I spend hours with this person on a fishing boat, you know, or could I have a beer with this guy? And now like, I don't drink. So I guess for me, it's, could I watch a three hour football game with this person? You know, I want to know if I'm going to be able to enjoy spending time with you beyond just working with you and knowing that you have an understanding of how you need to serve the patient. 
as a practitioner, you spend just as much, if not more time with these people in your clinic than you probably spend with your family, your significant other, or whoever else. And so it's important that you get along, um, especially when we come across tough times like right now. Um, my wife and I have seven associates who we work with. Um, so it's a big group and it's great. We've got a fantastic team. Everybody's really, really good, uh, really bright group. I think that's a great point. Like, you know, we all graduated optometry school, so we all are intelligent in that way. Mm -hmm. So it's like what sets you from apart from other candidates is your personality. And, and it's, it's nice to have that two personalities match. And I guess that's what makes uh, something successful. Exactly, exactly. You know, at the end, I mean, when you interview people, and, and maybe you guys have seen this already, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> at every level, whether it's an optometrist or front staff, pretesters, whoever, yeah. everybody has the ability to put their best foot forward. You know, that, that's, if that weren't the case, they probably wouldn't have made it as far as they did. Mm -hmm. But it's when you peel back those layers of who they really are, that that's what really matters, you know, and mm -hmm. there are going to be times when you're going to want to speak to somebody that, and have no conversation at all about optometry. I think yep. that you should be able to do that. You don't have to be best friends with everybody in your clinic, but I think you should be able to talk to people about other things once in a while. And yeah. again, the people who you spend the most amount of time with, it'd be nice if you had some common interest or some commonality with these people. That's true. Um, kind of going back to your uh, point on referrals and you said you guys get a lot of referrals mm -hmm. and then I know your practice is a location for like a lot of pre and post off LASIKs as well. Mm -hmm. What steps do you take or would you recommend for other optometrists that they can increase the amount of referrals they get or like kind of learning how to co-manage with the other OMDs? Yeah, um, we do a lot of pre and post-op care for all sorts of ocular surgeries yeah. um, and for other things as well. And I think that all starts with, well, first it started with smart referrals. When we would see things in our chair, <laughs> if it was something that was beyond our scope of practice, we wouldn't just send it and say, I can't do this. Take it, please. You know, we would send a detailed letter and we'd explain, this is what I think is going on. This is how I would treat it. Something that is beyond my scope. I understand that you're in my community and I would love to co-manage this patient with you or have you manage this patient and please share the information with me going forward. I would love to be uh, kept in the loop of this patient's progress if it's not something that I can be treating myself and managing myself. Um, I think after you do that enough times, people start to learn your name. They start to figure out who you are. And if the referrals make sense and they're logical and they're reasonable referrals and they're not things that you could have just taken care of in your own chair, I think a lot of those things start coming back to you. So a lot of the ophthalmologists uh, on their own seem to have reached out to us and, and said, hey, you know, would you be comfortable managing this case or that case? And, and so we do, you know, we, we, some years ago, we had uh, a corneal specialist in our province who was retiring and she was the only one. And uh, I didn't know what was going on, but I was getting these referrals from her for different things. You know, I want you to get this done or get that done. I thought, well, why is she saying, she's the expert. Why is she asking me to manage this patient? And then after I did a few of them and I sent back the information, I got this box of files and she said, perfect. Okay. Basically it was a test and she wanted to know if it was something that we would be able to handle ourselves. And she, these patients, she, she had developed a rapport with and they trusted her. So she wanted to make sure that before she retired, they were going to be in good hands. And so I think it all just started with smart referrals. Um, it, you know, and also it, it was a lot of door knocking, you know, when we started fresh, we introduced ourselves to everybody in the community. We met all the pharmacists, we met all the physios, we met all the chiropractors, we met all the family doctors, we met all the ophthalmologists. 
we we made we put ourselves out there um or one or both of us might have been at a school talking to kids about their eyes or we one or both of us might have been at a church or a local community center in the evening doing different things like that and so i think that in most cities word of mouth is a very powerful thing and a lot of this ends up getting back to these other doctors and specialists you know patients will say you know i saw this guy and he was actually talking about my diabetes as well i didn't know that my optometrist could manage diabetes and so next thing you know these family physicians are writing us back or calling us saying hey i'm going to send all of my diabetic patients to you because it's important that they're checked and that's not something that i do and i'd like you to do it so i guess like i said just putting ourselves out there and making good and appropriate referrals was the way that we sort of set that off your your reputation will always precede you and so if you can do the right thing and make people happy ultimately i think a lot of those referrals will come to you from other physicians or other practitioners of different sorts yeah yeah, I think the, I think four eyes has ruined our reputation. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard nothing but wonderful things about all of you, so I don't know. You basically just answered our next question because we wanted to ask you, you know, what strategies did you use to promote your practice to the community? Mm. So it yeah. sounds like it was a lot of door knocking, a lot of calling, and just word of mouth. But um, how mm. do you now increase your new patient encounters today, and yeah. how? your patients uh, returning back to your practice these days? Our online presence is something that's important to us now. That's building and growing. And, and you know, I'm, I'm much older than you guys. And so that's something that I, I think that I do reasonably well, but certainly not as well as, as all of you would. Um, but that's very important to us. So Instagram, Facebook, all those different platforms are very important to getting our names out there and marketing ourselves to the community. And we've done a lot of other different things. You know, we've been in newspapers and blog posts and you know whenever the you know vision health month rolls around or children's vision month rolls around <clears throat> i'll often write articles in the in the local newspaper and and so those are ways that we've done it uh like i said word of mouth was a really big thing and we still do that we still make it a point to ensure that our patients leave feeling very comfortable you know in our in our practice i always say that my goal is for you to be in the chair for 20 minutes but to feel like you've been there for an hour I want to know what you're doing for your grandson's birthday. I want to know what events are coming up. If you've traveled lately, if you've done this, that, or the other, I think those things are all important. And ultimately it makes people feel comfortable. Um, if they're comfortable, it also kind of establishes that rapport where now there's a greater level of trust. And again, like I said, that, that level of knowledge or intelligence is a minimum standard. So at that point, if I was able to convey to them that I understand their problem and they can be comfortable with me and relate to me, generally what that leads to is, they they bring they're the ones who bring the new patients they end up telling their grandmother grandfather sister aunt uncle and there's i'll tell you not that they're necessarily targeted but there is nobody more powerful as a consumer than the 25 to 50 year old woman you know it's it's because <laughs> because you 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 know everybody you have parents siblings aunts uncles children husbands wives whoever and and, and you're the decision maker. I mean, how many times in all of our practices have we had that, you know, macho man who comes in for an eye exam and he, he finishes everything and you say, okay, well, these are the frames my optician's going to give you a hand. And he says, oh, I can't make that decision without my wife. You know, I mean, he knows, you know, and, and I know too, I don't even pick my own glasses and this is what I do for a living. Like, yeah. so, so there are very specific people who you do need to be aware of who you're marketing to. And, and that is a important group to consider when you're, when you're, um, planning how you're going to get yourself out there. But I guess to really answer your question, yeah, we've, we, we get new patients, I think, from our existing 
And then, yeah, then they end up moving on and telling the next person. Because by the same token, if you've done something that people aren't happy with, they will absolutely make it a point to tell everybody that they know, everybody who they know that you've done something that doesn't make sense to them or that they don't like. Or So you have to find ways to make people as comfortable as possible in every aspect of your practice. And that starts from the moment they look you, on, look you up online to the moment they leave your clinic doors and did you send them a thank you or call them or anything of that sort. Yeah. Um, so I know we kind of talked about this a little bit before with what's yeah. going on in the world right now, but what are your tips on managing such a large staff? Like how do you keep... Mm morale so high and how do you decrease staff turnover staff management is by far the most challenging part of practice ownership in my mind and i've heard that from a lot of, a lot of other people and for us because we've got you know 30 some people it's it's difficult you know now by design we don't hire people of all one personality we ensure that we've got a variety of personalities at every station of our practice so again whether that's the people sitting next to each other at the front desk or pre-testing and running fields. Everybody's very different and we've made sure of that. Now, sometimes that goes a long way to be helpful and sometimes that can bite us a little bit because personalities can clash somewhat. But I think that what we've done to ensure that morale is high, which is really important right now, we try to make ourselves accessible. We engage with our staff and our docs as much as we can. Uh, We have staff events with them. We recently went bowling. We've taken them ax throwing. We've, we, you know, we'll do dinners and things like that. Like we've just got different events that we like to try to put together just so people can spend time together, especially because having three offices, there are people in our practice who never see each other and don't know each other beyond a name written on a schedule because they never cross paths. Beyond, you know, I think immediately people think about compensation and that's important. You know, you can't underpay people. You, you have to treat them fairly and pay them accordingly. Um, and, and we try our best to pay them well and they've got benefits, et cetera. And I think that's all very important. But I think that what, after some time of practice, I think experience will show you all that compensation, yes, is important, but it's not the end all be all for most staff people. A lot of people, they want to feel respected. They want to feel somewhat empowered and that they have some ability to make decisions on their own and not be micromanaged. Uh, and so we, we go out of our way to ensure that, you know, we, we empower people and we say, look, like, that's not my front desk, that's yours. If I come in tomorrow and all the computers are over there on the side and it's just space for paper over here, I might look at you funny. I might ask you why, but it's your desk, not mine. As long as it makes sense, go for it. Worst case scenario, I'll say, hey, you know, we've tried that before. I'm not so sure if that idea is going to work but we can have a dialogue about it. And so I guess that's the next biggest thing is accessibility. You know, there was a time when, when we were really small and I think what made us successful was our staff knew that they could come to us because there was nobody else to go to. There were three or four or five of us in the building. Now with so many of us and we're coming and going and I work at each clinic myself, I try to make sure that the staff understand that we are always there when they need us. And so whether it's a phone call, an email, a text, we're not, off the, there's no point when we're off the clock. This, these practices are our fourth child. It's just creating that comfortable atmosphere. Like I was saying earlier about the patients, that comfortable atmosphere applies to the staff as well. Kind of like going back to your point, I think that's a really good point because I feel like a lot of patients, when they come to your clinic, if they see that you have a good interaction with your staff, they can pick that up very easily. And that makes the patients feel more like at home, makes that a, a comfortable environment for everyone. So that's yeah. kind of really good to keep in mind. Um, our my next question is kind of like, kind of want to know how and like, when did you decide to open up more practices? 
Hmm. And was there like a specific goal you reached with your current practice before you decided to open up another one? Like, was it related to like profit or was it that you just had a lot of patience that you're like, I can open a new practice? That's a great question. You know, so, so that was all the plan was (laughs) to open up when we saw a certain level of growth. Uh, nothing, nothing goes according to plan. It's, um, and that isn't necessarily a negative thing. That's, that's, you know, it's much like having children. I don't know that there's ever the right time. You you prepare and plan all you want, but you're always going to be underprepared or too busy or what have you. Um, There's never a perfect time to open a practice. You might have come into some resources financially, but there are always things that you could be doing. Maybe you want to build a house or whatever else. And so there's never a perfect time. I think that what for us was the impetus to open multiple practices was opportunity. I think that opportunity needs to be the guide. Of course, you if you don't have the means to do something, well, then you don't do it. You have to understand your financial situation, situation before you can make those types of decisions. But if a space becomes available in an area that um, has a need, well, then maybe it's something to consider. And that's how it worked for us. There were, there were different places that popped up. Some of our practices opened up a little bit more quickly than we expected them to. One of them, we ended up opening uh, six days before our, our last child was born. Wow. That's, that's, that's really bad timing. That's, that's not, uh, I wouldn't recommend that. But, <laughs> but ultimately, the opportunity presented itself, and it was set up such that if we didn't pounce on that opportunity then, we might have missed out. And so, so again, you know, when considering opportunity, I think what we're looking for is, you know, will we be able to make something successful here, first and foremost? You know, very simply stated, can this work? Um, but beyond that, do we have a presence in this neighborhood? Who else is already in this neighborhood? Is there going to be a, an excessive amount of competition because it's overly saturated? What does the population look like? We do a lot of research on our own into the demographics and population statistics because all that stuff is available online. BLS.gov was the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And there are similar sites in Canada, but they I really liked how BLS did their site just in that you could find absolutely everything. You could determine what we thought people should earn in different states. When we were applying for jobs, or when we had different opportunities, we were able to compare ourselves to other optometrists in the area. We could say, okay, well, if we were going to try to take over this practice in Florida, what do we need to pay opticians? Well, we could look on bls.gov and determine that in this neighborhood, opticians make this amount of money. The average household income for the patients in this area is approximately X. You know, and, and there are numerous sites out there that you can use to determine who's in your neighborhood. And I think that's kind of the first step in determining if, a, if an opportunity is reasonable is, are you going to be able to fill the seats with the, the exam chairs with patients um, and if you do, are they going to want to pay for your exam services, fees, glasses, pay for your contact lenses, et cetera? I guess, again, my long answer is that it's all, for us, opportunity-driven. That was really good. I really like that you are mentioning, you know, think about the opportunities that are presenting to you. You don't always have to say yes to every single one. You right. should say yes to the ones that make sense. Um, right. Because I've personally gotten that advice before, especially as a student. Um, I've been told, say yes to every opportunity. Every opportunity that comes to your door, always say yes, because you never know if it's something that'll change your life. And that felt really overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, I've said no to everything until now. So I, <laughs> I missed out on life. Yeah. Um, I, f- I feel like that's really true. You don't want to just say yes to everything and work on overdrive to satisfy all these opportunities that you've said yes to. 
they should match your goals, your lifestyle, your family's interaction and relationships. So I feel like that takes yeah. the pressure off a little bit too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I can tell you, cause you're, you're right. I've, and I've done that, you know, and, and I'm, I, well, I'm probably still doing it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of different things, uh, at different levels and, and it's fun and it's fantastic. And there were times when it became a little bit overwhelming. And what you'll find that is if you, if you do something well, more people are going to ask you. And so it's not to suggest that you shouldn't take any opportunity that comes, but by the same token, I think you have to understand that if you were to take every opportunity that came to you, you would probably only do each of them at 50 or 60%. At which point you're no longer useful to the people who thought that you were once great. So you have to be able to understand what you have to offer and what you're capable of. When, when ICO asked me to be on the alumni council, I thought, yeah, this is great. It's going to be fun. Why not? You know, I love the school and I will always do anything I can for the school. I'm back there all the time. This is a good opportunity. And then when the board, when I, when I got asked to be on the board, I thought, okay, well, that's, this is great. But the commitment level is even greater. And then, you know, I joined the council here in Manitoba and, and then, you know, my position here is growing it. And so with all these opportunities that come, my answer is never, yes, absolutely, I'm going to do this, or no, absolutely, I cannot do this. My answer is always, I'm really flattered that you consider me. How much time do I have to think about this? Because I think that it's important that I take the time to understand how it will fit into my life. You basically already answered my next question because we did notice that you are involved in a lot of optometric associations and not mm -hmm. just in Canada and Manitoba, but also Florida and obviously the American Optometric Association. So mm -hmm. you already basically answered this, but we wanted to know what are your roles in each association and how do you manage your time to remain active in each one, especially the associations that you don't live in those states? Yeah. It's challenging. Um, so first and foremost, it starts because I have an incredible wife. Uh, she's unbelievable. Like I said, she does the same. She has the same job that I have, um, and so she's no less busy than I am. And she's involved in a number of different boards and councils as well. But we match well, and we we balance it well together. But so I guess so. What am I doing? So at ICO, like I said, I'm on the alumni council. I'm the vice president of that. Um, I'm on the board of trustees and I'm the chair of the development committee. Um, and I'm on a couple of subcommittees. I'm on the executive committee there. Um, and I'm on the governance committee. Um, and then in Winnipeg, I am on the council for the Manitoba association for optometrists and I'm secretary treasurer for that. And so, so yeah, you asked a good question. How do I manage it? Um, Sometimes I just don't think about it. You know, it's, you may be young for this, but I, what, what I tell people is, so I don't know if you guys ever saw or, you, or remember the, cart the Looney Tunes cartoons or in the Roadrunner. Yeah. But the Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote would be running and he'd be chasing that Roadrunner and then the Coyote would run off of the cliff and he wouldn't fall until he looked down. And that's when he realized that gravity actually existed. I always say, like, that's my life. Like, <laughs> like, 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 as long as I don't look down, it's probably going to be okay. Ultimately, I, I do all these different things because I enjoy them. I love the profession and I'm very passionate about optometry and about serving the community. At the end of the day, it's about serving the community. And I think that much of that starts with the students. And so that's why a lot of my involvement, I've tried to find ways to tie it back to the students. Now, obviously I have a natural tie to ICO being a graduate. You know, to an extent, I guess I believe in karma and that 
I believe that like whatever you put into this world, I think you're going to get out of it. And, and, you know, it feels good that I have an opportunity to help further this profession. You know, when I was living in Florida, I got to be involved a little bit in furthering the scope of practice because we were pushing for the right to prescribe orals. It was fantastic. Um, so I think it's important that we build this platform for you guys so they can be something greater. So just to summarize this entire conversation, what mm-hmm. do you think are the three toughest lessons you learned just from opening a private practice and managing it? Kind of putting you on the spot here. But- yeah, no, that's okay. That's a very good question. Um, Okay, so I think first and foremost, it's that not everybody is going to have the same mentality as me. I think that's really important to consider. I am the type of person who, if I've done something wrong, I want to hear it, and I want to hear it quickly so we can fix it, and then it's done. Not everybody likes that. I I always say that, you know, you sort of treat people how you expect to be treated, but I think that that's probably a little bit unfair. I think you need to treat people how they expect to be treated, not how you expect to be treated. And so, and it it took, it it sounds simple, but it took me a while to to learn and realize that, that, you know, it's not everybody wants to, to be told directly, Hey, you messed this up. You better fix it. So I think it's really important to understand that we don't all have the same mentality and it's incumbent upon us as practice owners, or just as people, as humans to figure out how, the people who we interact with want to be treated. Um, I think having an understanding of what our patients feel is important. That, that's another one as well. You know, it's what you need to figure out, especially if you're trying to grow your practice, is not just what other optometrists thought made sense. You need to find out what potential patients think makes sense. That's the key to the practice growing. That's who you're serving. You're not serving other optometrists. You're serving patients. And so if it makes sense to a patient that you present things a certain way or that if you're running a promotion that it's phrased a certain way so they can understand it, well, then you need to do it that way, you know? And so I think that uh, sort of stepping back and I'll say removing the ego from it and in, in, in thinking that, oh, I'm the optometrist. I know exactly how this needs to run. You know, I think it was important to step out of that and say, I don't know what everybody wants. I know what I think makes sense, but I need to know what the patients want because if I'm going to make them happy, I don't need to do the things that make sense to me. I need to do the things that make sense to them. Uh, Final thing that's toughest lessons that we've learned. Um, You know, I'll say what we were talking about earlier is turning away opportunity. Um, It's, it's, again, I I don't mean to overstate it or suggest that, that we can't take new opportunities when they come or that we should turn them all away. But I think it's just understanding where your threshold is and understanding what more you can handle that's within the level of comfort that you personally have. Um, we all have different life circumstances and situations. You know, I've got three young children and I need to make sure that I'm available for them, you know? And, and so um, understanding that there will be times when I will not necessarily pursue an opportunity because it wouldn't necessarily fit my life at present is, has been a, a tough lesson for me because much like you were saying, Amrit, I initially just said yes to all of them. And, and if I was to do that today with the number of opportunities that present, I would drown. There's, there's no way I would be able to survive that. I think that's pretty good kind of to put it out there because then you don't want to get involved in something that you don't have a passion for because you're just wasting that big chunk of your time on something that you're doing that you're not happy and it's not giving you anything back in return. Going to my next question with this, it's like, how can new grads like us get involved in the optometric associations? So I am of the mindset that uh, I don't turn away volunteers. Uh, it's, it's, I think that 
if you've got somebody who's young and passionate, I think it's important that you pursue them. Um, in fact, even on our provincial association, there are bylaws that dictate uh, the amount of time that somebody must be in practice before they are able to join our council. You know, as I thought about that more and more, that didn't really sit well with me because my thought was, these, you've got these new grads who are young and passionate and full of energy and they wanna do something. And you tell them, that's fantastic. I'll see you in two years. And, and that's, that's, that's really hard. I mean, you're really, you're, to take the steam out of them and to, you know, or the wind out of their sails is, is unfortunate to, because over time, sadly, unfortunately, there are people who will become somewhat jaded and they might lose some of that passion. I, I think that if you've got people who are passionate about the profession, you pursue them. So what I was a part of in our association now, we have a new graduate position. And they're a non-voting member on our council, but they participate in all of our meetings. They're, they're informed of everything that happens. So they're exchanging all the emails. They're in all of our meetings, as I said, and, and they're involved at a very high level. So my advice to the new grads is as much as there may be bylaws, and every province and state is different, so I don't know what all the bylaws are everywhere. Some of them might allow you to be involved right away. But I say you knock on doors. Um, what I did was as, as a student, I emailed, I, I, I joined the California Optometric Association and I got all their publications and I just read the names in the back of the publications and I emailed every one of them. And I told them, I said, look, I'm a student, I'm going to graduate and I'll be moving to your area. And I think I'll have something to offer. I've learned a little bit about your practice. Of course, I looked them all up and found out what they all did and specialized in. And I said, you know, if I'm ever in the area, I'd love to come sit down and meet with you and chat. And, uh, and I think that the same thing can be done with these different groups and councils. I think that people put themselves out there to ask for help or to inform you of things. I think that the sign you need to take is that they have now contacted you. So now the next step is being proactive and taking their name and information and getting back to them and finding out what opportunities they may have for you. Um, just to kind of wrap up this interview, because everything that we, everything that you've talked about has been really, really helpful information, not only for us, but definitely for all of our listeners. Um, but we do want to ask an interesting question about your wife, because we do want to put her in the spotlight for a bit. Yeah. Um, we did notice that on your website for your private practice, it does say that she is now the author of a children's book that's coming out sometime in 2020. Are you able to give us a sneak peek of what this book is about and when it's going to be out? Yeah, so I have to be careful, I guess, about how much I can say prior to its release. But uh, um, so yes, I'm I'm very proud to say that she's written this children's book. It's 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 really cool. You know, I I don't think that she ever had plans of being an author, but she's an incredible person, and she's done some amazing things over the years. And uh, I, what I can tell you is that this book is related to what we all do. It's related to optometry, um, and so. It's, I guess, in summary, it's about an experience for, for a young person or a young child and, and how that all went for their first eye exam um, and what this profession meant to them afterwards. And so uh, I think the plan was for it to be coming a little bit sooner than it has now, but uh, with this global pandemic, things have slowed down a little bit. Uh, it is complete. Um, so now it's in the phase of preparing for publishing. And so sometime, I think, in the next couple of months, we'll, we'll have that available for, for people to buy on the shelves and online. Oh, nice. I was going to ask, actually, where would people have to look to purchase her book, her unknown 
unspoken about book. <laughs> yeah, I, have to be careful. I, I am married, so I have to be very careful. I yeah. want to stay married. So, so um, I, I'm sure that we will have some talk of it on our website. So that's prairieeye.com. Um, and beyond that, I'm sure that there will be some marketing for it. Um, our Instagram page, I'm sure our Facebook page, I'm sure will have some advertisement for it. Uh, and, and she, she, as much as she's doing this, she's not really one who wants to be in the public eye, but I will make sure that it's in the public eye because I think it's incredible. And I'm very proud of what she's accomplished here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm really excited for that because I'm in BV and VT. So I'm with kids all day. And so having more optometry related books is the best for those kids. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a profession that I mean, even as adults don't know what optometrists do. So I think it's really nice to, to sort of get that start with the kids so they can have some understanding of why they need an eye exam. Yeah. So just for our listeners, if they have mm-hmm. any questions about private practice or they want to connect with you, um, what's the best way to reach you? Oh, good question. Email, I'll tell you, is, is the best way to reach me. Um, I absolutely will respond. I'm always happy to help anybody. Like I said, new grads, students, whoever, people who have practices that are well-established, it doesn't matter. I'm always happy to share. I think that that's what we need to do is share. Um, so my email address, you guys can share it with everybody, but uh, it's, it's dr.owusu at prairieeye.com. Um, people can email me anytime. If I don't get back to you, uh, it was an accident. It, it means that it just got buried by one of the many emails that I get. And I'm absolutely not opposed to people emailing me again and saying, hey, dude, I emailed you and you never said anything. What's going on? I, I'm never, I'm not going to just ghost you, you know, like I'm just, just <laughs> tell me that yeah. I didn't email you back and I'll read it and I will get back to you as quickly as I can. But, but yeah, that was pretty much um, everything about private practice that we wanted to ask you about because we know mm-hmm. that you're really, really big with private practice. Um, you definitely preach a lot of it at ICO. So that's when we were kind of exposed to what private practice is all about. And I think mm-hmm. it's really going to help our listeners, especially in Canada as well. Um, because, you know, with a lot of the optometry schools in the U.S., sometimes it's hard for us Canadians to take that information and bring it back home. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's all very similar. And so if anybody on either side of the border ever has questions, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. And, and certainly if, if I don't know the answer, I'm sure that I know somebody who will. So I'm honored that you would even consider me to do this at all. So thank you for contacting me. Because you're such a, like, an amazing <laughs> Uh, you should be highlighted every day. So. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned.